Well, it's a great pleasure to be here today with uh, famed beer writer, award-winning beer writer, uh, Pete Brown. Um, Hello. Pete, thanks for taking the time to chat. It's okay. Uh, Absolute pleasure. I happen to be in London this week, and as luck would have it, so are you. So it's a pleasure to be uh, having a, a beer with you at the Camden Town Brewery. Uh, yeah. Right in, uh, right in London. So thanks for, thanks for meeting me. No problem. I thought I'd start by asking you if you could just tell, tell me a little bit about yourself and your, your background for those that might not be familiar with you yeah. in Canada. So I've been writing about beer uh, since about 2002, 2003. That's when my first book was published. Um, full-time writing about beer since about 2011, uh, Touchwood. And uh, I really kind of enjoy most writing books about beer. Uh, I, I started off looking at beer from a, a cultural perspective and a societal perspective. I didn't start off uh, coming from it uh, like a lot of people do, which is being a huge fan of uh, particular brews and writing tasting notes and things like that. I was very much about what beer says about us and what role it plays and how it helps shape us and define us and that's been a fairly big constant for me. But of course through that uh, I've developed a very deep appreciation of the product itself like we all do. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm, my, my sort of interest has spread as well. Um, but I had, as far as I know, the the second beer blog in the UK back in 2006. Well done. Uh, and yeah, I never expected writing about beer to become a career. Yeah. I thought I was going to write one book about beer and then I was going to get my uh, my face around publishing houses and then I was going to write the great uh, 21st century British novel. Uh, <laughs> and now here I am with uh, about four or five Another, books about beer yeah. under my belt and, uh, <laughs> and the novel's nowhere to be seen. Well, I guess beer has been... Prolific for you. This uh, sucks you in. Then. I think everybody I know, and you know, I've been around for a while now, and I've seen people come fresh to this industry, this world, this scene, and seen the same thing happen that happened to me, where yeah. you just kind of go, "Oh, this is quite interesting. I'll, I'll have a look," and then you end up devoting your life to it. It's, yeah. it's a movement. It's a. Uh, it, it's something which can combine a profession, a job, something which gives you personal fulfillment and your social life and great sort of sensory enjoyment yeah. um, is, and travel and everything else. It's a, it's a way of life. Well, I found from my own personal experience that beer offers so much yeah. and yeah. Uh, it really is quite something to be immersed in that world. It really is. Because it gets all those things from it just has, like yeah, just like us meeting up yeah, yeah. an ocean away and over this. We're in London, but this could have just as easily happened in Toronto. Yeah. Or maybe in Belgium or somewhere else. You know, exactly. that, that's that's what I find thrilling about it. Yeah. And I get pissed off with it every now and again. I get bored with it every now and again. I get frustrated and uh, you know at the moment there's a lot of aggro, a lot of hassle with, uh, a lot of spats online and things like this. And you think oh this is not where it used to be and then yeah. you will taste that one new beer and suddenly you're back to where you it were stuff and, go you're, away. and you're just like I'm so excited by this entire thing all over again like just like the first time yeah well I'd, I'd love to ask you about your background prior to beer because we have some shared history together not personally but um, professionally and that is you were an ad man and that's been my professional career ever since I left university. And so I'd love right. to hear about your um, 
your background in advertising and, and how yeah. you transitioned into this world? I've been giving that a lot of thought recently because my route into my route into beer was was from advertising. Yeah. But then when I think about it in in the round, my route into advertising was beer. Um, no, I, I I grew up at a time when TV comedy in the UK was in a bit of a fallow period. Uh, you know, we, we're world famous, I guess, for Monty Python in the 70s. Um, in the late 80s, we had a kind of alternative comedy boom, which started in clubs in the early 80s, but didn't make it onto TV until the late 80s. So when I was kind of a teenager in school in the early 80s, comedy wasn't great. And it's not that comedy is my life, but when you're a kid at school, you go into the playground in the morning and you talk about what, what was funny on last night's TV. And... When I was doing that when I was 13, 14, the funniest things from last night's TV were the beer commercials. Right. And, uh, and I remember this going on all the way through my adolescence. And when I was at university wondering what to do, um, I coming up to my final year, I had no idea what I wanted to do as a career. And I saw there was, a, there was an ad for, for curling, which of course is a Canadian brand, but yeah. most people over here think of it as, as a British beer because it's become so ubiquitous in Britain. And, and they had this series of stunningly brilliant, entertaining comedy commercials. Nothing about the beer. Right. Yeah, no, nothing, no, nothing about hops or, <laughs> yeah. or lagering time or anything yeah. like that. Um, and this particular commercial, it had got to the point where these things were cinematic in their scope and in their production values. And these subtitles came up, it's like, mortally wounded after battle, King Arthur is, is, is taken uh, to his final resting place. And it's sort of stirring music and choirs of angels, and uh, Arthur tells a knight to throw the sword into the lake okay. um, as he's dying, which is a thing that everyone who's kind of read the story King Arthur knows about and uh, so the guy throws the sword into the lake and the jeweled hand of the lady of the lake comes out and grabs the sword and then this music then the music changes and all these ladies of the lake come out and start doing a synchronised swimming thing <laughs> uh, and fireworks go off and everything else reminds me of beer and, and the knights are standing on the shore looking at these these synchronised swimmers in the middle of the lake and but they drink Carl and Black Lady <laughs> And I watched that ad and I thought, and, and the thing is, you, all the way through you think you're watching a trailer for a new movie about King Arthur, yeah. until suddenly the whole scenario changes. changes and I just thought, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I want to make ads like that. <laughs> so I, I applied for jobs in advertising and I, yeah. I spent a while doing what everybody does when they start advertising, uh, working on washing powder, uh, detergent, yeah. bleach. Uh, pet it counts food. nobody wants yeah but you, you get a good grounding you get yeah. good discipline you learn how it all works uh, you learn the evaluation tools and things like that um, and after about about seven years into my career I found myself working on those beer ads yeah uh, which was which is just great yeah yeah it's funny I've I've sort of done similar things I've worked in advertising my entire career and then it's always funny when my beer life and my ad life have crossed over because I have worked. I worked on Heineken, I think as you did. I worked on Heineken, yeah. Yeah, I worked on. Um, I ran the Canadian marketing for uh, Sapporo and for Sleeman, which is yeah. the Canadian brewery that they bought. And it's always funny when those worlds sort of collided. And I was bringing my personal beer feelings to the table in my job yes it was yeah it's a different way that those guys think about beer. I think it's changing I, I, I totally agree 
for the vast majority of the time that I've been doing it. And I guess it was two years ago, I was doing some consultancy work with Guinness. Okay. And uh, they flew me over to Dublin for this, for this meeting. And I'm sure you, if you go out with some of the, the, the corporate beer guys, you, you go to a bar and you're drinking their brand. Yeah. Everybody's drinking their brand. And, and if they don't have their brand in the bar, you're going to a different bar. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so we arrived at this place and they said, oh, Pete, what do you want to drink? And I said, oh, dealer's choice. Exactly. So I wasn't going to say I want a Guinness, but I was going to let them get me a Guinness without me asking for it. And they came back with this beer. said, oh, this is from a really exciting new brewery down in the southwest of Ireland. It's an IPA that they're doing. It's got these hops in it. I'm like, oh, I thought we were out with the marketing executives from Guinness. They're obviously kind of, I guess there's a couple of those guys here, but they've got together a big bunch of uh, Irish bloggers and beer writers because this is not how and about halfway through the evening I realised they were all marketing guys at Guinness but what's because beer is now such a kind of flagship interesting exciting career guys who want to get into beer are now taking graduate marketing jobs in big breweries to learn about the industry and I'm sure all those guys are plotting on opening up their own breweries in five years time or something like that but when I was when I was back in the day when I was doing this full time you you were dealing with a guy who used to work on pet food and his next job was going to be on confectionery right and he was treating beer the same way he was treating any other product yeah and you're getting a change now where the guys you're dealing with they might be selling cheap subs but they're passionate beer fans a lot of them and and they're drinking interesting beer and they say well why aren't we making beer that's this interesting so so I think a lot of the the big guys are going to start uh, changing in their, in their perspective. Well, I think they, I think they want to get there because I, you know, I still maintain some friendships with the clients that I had at Sleeman, and in the summertime, last summer, we actually took a road trip down to Buffalo, New York, to buy beer, and I, I went down with them so I could sort of give them some insight as to the craft scene and we dropped almost a thousand dollars in a day because they were just <laughs> buying everything from all the like a, a, a lot of the hot and less hot US craft breweries international ones looking at different styles and labels and what is working there to try to bring up that knowledge for themselves even though they may not actually do the same kind of yeah your styles they want to understand how the market dynamics work yeah definitely that is a world away from the marketing executives I was working with in I mean I started um, I started working on Heineken and Stella Artois in 1997 and back in those days the clients in charge of that business could not tell you what a hop was, what a hop looked like. They, they didn't know what lagering time was. They, yeah. they, they and it, it, I wasn't asking that they should be interested and passionate about it necessarily. But when I worked on pensions business, I had to know how a pension worked. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're in charge of a beer brand, surely you've got to know what's in the damn glass and how it's made. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's one thing that I learned from my advertising career. Is like when you're working on a brand. You can't be successful if you just you only have surface level knowledge as to what the no, product is. Like no, you need to trick yourself up. So, I um, I want to get to your book, but I, I I'm very I was fascinated when I was reading today about your involvement in the Beer Insider marketing yeah, awards. Yeah, yeah. I thought this was a 
a really interesting and cool thing, something I'm surprised we've never seen back home. But I wanted to ask you how that got started, because I think it's about three years old now. Yeah. And um, sort of what was, what, what was that, yeah. what's that all about? Because beer marketing is always something that people have familiarity, familiarity with, but it's kind of cool that you actually have yeah. something to recognize. I mean, it's six years since we first had the idea. Okay. And it took us three years to, to bring it to fruition to the first time. Yeah. Uh, there are three of us who do it. And we do it on a voluntary basis. Uh, we do it because we think something like this should exist. Yeah. Now, hopefully, you know, one day, hopefully, we'll make some money out of it for the, for the incredible amount of time we put into yeah. it. But uh, at the moment, none of us make any make a penny off it. Um, but the idea was, you know, there are lots of awards in the industry for uh, for the product, for, yeah. for the beer itself, yeah. and rightly so. That is the most important thing. Uh, I won't ever challenge that. Um, but. Um, the marketing of beer, as I say, it's what got me into beer in the first place. But when you have, and in the UK now, we have, depending on who you listen to, we have between 1,700 and 2,000 breweries uh, in this country. And uh, we have a shrinking market. We have 15 pubs closing every week. Uh, the beer market has been in volume decline for about 15 years. And the number of breweries is going up and up and up. We have two or three new breweries opening every week. So how is that going to work? Yeah. Um, and you can say, well, my product's got the best hops in it. I'm the best brewer. Blah blah blah. blah. Is that right? But how is anyone going to know that? Uh, and and I think there's a there's a trend. There's an anti-marketing trend. Uh, people will say, well, we don't do marketing. I'm like, that's a pretty cool label you've got yeah. there on your can. Guess what that is. Guess what that is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that that Twitter account you've got there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> where, where you're engaging with your with your drinkers and your uh, that tap takeover you're doing at that local bar, yeah, that collaboration, yeah, that's one-off marketing, barrel-aged beer, yeah. And, and the exciting thing about the awards is, I guess, if we'd done it ten years ago, uh, you would have had brewers with big budgets putting in TV ads, yeah. uh, brewers with slightly smaller budgets putting in press ads, and maybe a couple of events, and that would have been it. And what I think the craft sector has shown is that it's no longer about the size of your budget. And in, in the so we have categories for everything from best stunts, best late, best package, pack, packaging and design. Uh, we have best PR campaign, and some of these categories, you when it comes to the final shortlist, you have campaigns that cost 150 pounds versus campaigns that cost 10 million pounds. And, and they're up against each other. Yeah. And, and the, the playing field has been levelled, and it's about the quality of the idea now. Um, I always love saying, yeah, every single year, we've done, we've done it three years now, we're just, we're just launching the fourth year this week, oh, entries now open oh, this week for the, for the fourth year. And I love saying that, irrespective of whether you're Anna's or Shinbev, or the latest startup in a railway arch in East London, yeah. if you're doing a can of beer, you both have the same space on that can. Yeah. It doesn't matter how big your budget, doesn't matter what big agencies you've got or not, you both that have estate, you yeah. both have that real yeah. estate, what you're gonna do with it. Mm. And what we find in design and packaging is the smaller brewers are running rings around the big guys. Because the big guys are too conservative with their with their design. We couldn't possibly change the Pantone colour of the green on the can <laughs> because people might not recognise it. And you get guys guys like say Beaver Town who will break every single rule in the design book mm -hmm. and, and it will work and then break it again the next week yeah, yeah. yeah. and sometimes it doesn't work and sometimes yeah. it does um, and what, what I find really exciting is that um, 
I'm just looking at the menu here, the beer menu. They've got a couple of beers from Lost and Grounded, which is a new brewery based in Bristol. And they're a very good example of um, guys who've taken a packaging concept and created a brand world out of it. So if you line up all the bottle labels, they all join up into a big uh, sort of vista. Uh, And there are these characters running through them uh, that all have different roles to play. And then you start to see the characters elsewhere. And this is a kind of three-person brewery that just ha- one of them just happens to be a very talented graphic designer yeah. and they've got some creativity and that for me is the best beer design That's cool. in the country at the moment yeah. and it's just it's so exciting yeah. uh, and so the awards celebrate that they celebrate the diversity of it um, they're also there to encourage a raising of the standards we still have a lot of terrible beer marketing yes. we have a lot of sexist beer marketing still yes. uh, and the idea is to, to point to the good stuff and celebrate the good stuff and say, you know, this is this is this, where the level is. These are the standards that we want to hold ourselves to. Yeah, it's funny that you should, you know, t- tell me about that because I, I did a talk with um, a friend who runs a brewery, uh, Jason Fisher of Indy Alehouse, at the Canadian Brewing Awards last year, and our talk was around your, the product is most important, but the differentiating factors moving forward are going to be your story, what you stand for, your look, your feel. Basically, I was giving a brand yeah. seminar to a bunch of beer people yeah. because they've, they've, there's, a, there's been a lot of, okay, well, we need to make the best beer possible. Of course, that's the most important thing. But once everybody's making great beer, things like marketing is going to be differentiators so I think the other factor in that is uh, I've written a couple of pieces on this that the millennial generation um, are born to this they're they're brand native we talk about being digitally native but they're they're brand native as well so when I got my first job in advertising in 19 (coughs) um, I, I, I was hired because they said well you understand brands and brands are going to be quite important in the future and boy was that an understatement yeah uh, and it's the intangible aspects of brands it's not the kind of the the mark and the, and the recognizability of it necessarily although that's important it's the associations that come with it it's the intangible aspect of a brand yeah. that's now important and people who were born after I started working advertising they don't know anything else other than that <laughs> and every time someone uh, puts a filter on an Instagram pic Every time someone crafts the language of a tweet, uh, you know, every time someone decides to tweet about this cute doggy that they've seen, but not tweet about the the dog shit that they've just stepped yeah. in, you know, you're curating your own brand image. Yeah, you're you're being a brand manager with the messages that you're putting out, and then these people start breweries, going, oh, we don't do marketing. It's like, yes, you do. Yes, you do. But you're so it's so innate within you that you don't even realise that what you're doing is very sophisticated yeah. marketing well I always think that this simplistic observation that I've had is that people associate marketing with media spend but media spend is only one element of what a marketing plan would be yeah. and all the things that you're saying from hiring the cool graphic designer who lives in a loft near the brewery to help with your labels 
to your Instagram plan is all marketing. It's yeah. just not spending money on exactly. buying print ads. Yeah. So it's uh, and and yeah. it's and it's and it's outflanking the guys who are just spending money on print ads. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. It's it's reaching people more directly and more honestly. And all my time in marketing, all my time in yeah, 25 years now, people said, well, the important thing is that we don't just talk at our consumers we build a genuine to a relationship with relationship with them uh, people have been saying that for 25 years yeah. and, and not doing it yeah. uh, and social media and events I, I think I think the best beer marketing is a is a blend of social media and events and, and that genuinely is you could you can tweet your favorite brewery and go why don't you brew a beer with coffee grounds and and almonds and they might do it yeah <laughs> could happen yeah <laughs> So, I want to ask you about some of your latest stuff now. You spoke about the intangibility of beer through marketing. Now, your latest book is about the tangibility yes. of beer. <laughs> and it is a very literal beer book now versus some of your past books, which yeah. are more about beer brewing and well, the culture around beer. Yeah. And now, um, your new book, Miracle Brew, is very definitively about Absolutely, what yeah. is in it versus yeah. what surrounds it. So um, I was, I, I've been reading it this, this week in anticipation of our meeting and I mean I thought it was I mean, so great because technical beer books sometimes get a little dry. Yeah. Of course you were able to kind of break that and write a book about the technology of beer if you will but um, in a very interesting and creative way so yeah. do you want to tell me about how Miracle Brew came about yeah so I mean I at the start I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a writer since I was nine yeah. and um, I was you know I ended up writing three books about beer and then my my publishers were going really love your voice really love your work Maybe enough about the beer now. <laughs> maybe, maybe start doing some other things. And so, you know, I went into writing about cider. I, I pursued a path of writing about uh, social history in a slightly broader sense as well, uh, a bit more about nature. And then it got to 2015, and I thought, shit, I haven't written a book about beer for six years. Yeah. Right. Uh, in fact, I haven't published a book about beer since the whole craft beer boom hit the UK. Yeah. What the hell am I doing? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I love writing in a broader sense, and, and my plan from now on, touch wood, is to just kind of alternate beer books with books that have nothing to do with beer, right. and, try, and try and pursue a dual career. Um, but I, I wanted to write another book about beer. I missed the subjects. I, you know, Every article I write is about beer, my blog is about beer, but that long-form creative writing, as you say, that kind of, let's really get into it, let's really get roll our sleeves up and dig into it. And this one came out of just a visit to a hop field, and I start getting very lyrical about the hops, and... Um, really excited and, and thinking okay everyone loves hops but how many people have actually been to a hop field how many people have smelt what the hop harvest smells like in a field yeah. and, and seen the way they hang and there's a romance to them and there's a there's a special kind of mystique to them I'm going to write a book about hops and about 10 seconds after I'd had that thought I was like why is it always fucking hops why, why is that the only one that everyone talks about I'm going to write a book about hops and barley and yeast and water uh, and I'm going to give them equal billing 
and of course, as it turns out, the hops section is twice as long in the book, in the finished book, as any other section. But I, I really wanted to dig into it, and, um, and I try my hand at different genres. And what I love about beer, we've talked about how all pervasive it is. I've written about beer from a, a history point of view, a travel point of view, uh, a sort of personal point of view. Uh, some of my some of my articles and blog posts I write about it from a political or a, or a regulatory point of view, and I I enjoy I make this joke about I enjoy spotting lucrative non-fiction literary trends and then missing them uh, by, by about a year and as I was having this whole epiphany about hops and everything else nature writing is really really big yeah. and I thought excellent I'll write a nature and science book about beer and I'll just miss that I'll just miss it. Yeah. Uh, well just like a, a nice barrel aged beer you just were maybe a bit, a bit like yes so but, but then you know what was great about it I, I did it through a, a publisher which works on a subscription model okay. a publisher called Unbound and the the hard part of that is you have to go out and raise the production costs of the book right. uh, up front before you can start really doing much work on it which is horrible mm. uh, there's nobody would say that that is great fun um, and people were saying oh what happened I thought you were a successful writer why have you had to resort to crowdfunding and it's like well no it's not I've had to resort to it it's, it's a different model and also if the book sells as many as my previous books have done I end up making a lot more money out of it from the deal that you get after the crowdfunding I don't get, I don't get, any, I don't get a penny of the crowdfunding money but then once the book is published I get 50% of the profit starts making money then yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was an interesting model I thought well, I'll give it a go and, and what happened was that normally when you're writing a book you keep your idea very close to your chest you're, yeah. you're paranoid someone else is going to steal right. it all this kind of stuff and because it was a crowdfunded book I had to talk about yeah. it in order, to, in order to get yeah. the pledges and so because I was talking about the idea for this book before I'd written a word of it I started getting all these calls from people and emails oh well if you're doing this maybe you should come to our uh, hop farm maybe you should come to our maltings and so, the, doors. so the book took on this extra life which I never expected it to I thought I was going to be sitting at my desk looking at technical brewing manuals uh, and trying to kind of rewrite some of the stuff in a more yeah. engaging way which I did but on top of that I actually got first hand experience in, a, in an awful lot of places I got to go and pick hops in Yakima Valley yeah. uh, and in Tasmania um, and I got to go to Maltings in, in Bamberg and um, you know, seeing smoke malt being made and, and all these kinds of things. Oh, and so, so the cool. book became a lot richer mm. as a result of its publication So process. the openness yeah. worked to your advantage. Yeah, so it became a much richer book and a much richer experience for me yeah. writing it. It was, it was really right. special. Well, it's funny, I, I think the book's already affected me simply because I have to admit, I, I'm probably like most people that you described in your first couple of chapters where the hop has the spotlight and everybody points to the hop and it's like this beer is this hop this hop this hop then I got to thinking well wouldn't it be great if the other characters of the beer play got some spotlight and you know like the water level might be talked about in a on a beer menu and then I noticed here that the menu they they actually do list them all alongside yeah. hops yeah. which is really cool and um you know, it, it struck me that like it would be, you know, certainly within the realm of 
possibility that you know a book like Miracle Brew helps raise the awareness of the other players. So, because I was in Howling Hops today and I walked by the the malt bags and I'm like, oh, crisp maltings. That was what you yes. mentioned in the yes. book. And I'm like, that was the one. And uh, I mean, I know the ones. The Canada maltings is a big one back home because. They, they malt the wheat from, from the prairies, but reading your book and then seeing yeah. seeing it in the brewery it just kind of gave a bit more of awareness to me as a fairly knowledgeable beer person about those ingredients. But I feel like it, I think that could help with anybody. Well, that's it. I mean, when I started the book, my my note to myself when I started was forget everything you think you know about the ingredients of beer yeah. and start again to it as, as, as fresh and I was right to do that because most of what I thought I knew was wrong <laughs> I, I had I had malt completely wrong in my head I stood up and given talks on malt which were total and utter bullshit <laughs> I now realise you know? um, and I've relearned it uh, and it's and it's Miracle Brew is is the right chat is the right title for the book just because there's there's miracles all the way through I, every day of my research I would find something out or I would under, finally understand something I'd been worrying away at I go no fucking way that's incredible how can that even happen that's amazing just time and time again in, in this whole process and yet you talk to most people who drink beer and they go yeah it's kind of made of chemicals in a factory isn't it yeah. like oh what a it's tragedy like, no. what a tragedy <laughs> that that's the impression it has uh, someone, someone, I can't remember who it was, but someone kind of was listening to me talk about the book and said, so basically you're saying beer is four times more complex than wine. <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah. That's I a guess good so. way of putting yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, that's great. I think, I mean, I, as I've been reading it, it's been such a, a treat to read it. And, um, and I think it'll... I mean, I think others will, will feel the same way. Um, I wanted to just ask you, just because we're in London, and I was reading your book, and it it talks about a, a lot of the um, a lot of the, the beer history of, of uh, England and Britain, the UK. You know, you've been now writing for a number of years. Um, how has the, the beer scene here changed in the last 10 years? Because in oh, it's been U.S. and Canada, it's, it's insane. I'd love to hear your perspective on, on the market here because I think a lot of, a lot of my beer friends, colleagues, listeners back home don't know about the U.K. as, as I'm, uh, I'm not that familiar yeah. with myself. It's been, it's been really great, and it's an interesting time. I mean, I think in the U.K., <coughs> we have a weird relationship with things that we're good at um, you know very famously as the first industrialised country we were the first to give so much to the world and then end up not being as good at it <laughs> right. as, as a lot of other people who take these things on and, um, and I think a lot of British people think that about beer um, right. so there's a lot of people getting into craft beer now People who think that IPA is an American yeah. beer style, for, for example, yeah. you know, uh, this is we're sitting in the city where porter and IPA were invented. Yes, just a few miles down. This is the home. Yeah, and who knows that? Who knows that? Who drinks beer? It, it's a really strange thing. British real ale. You, you, you get a lot of people into craft beer now, going, "Oh, I'm so glad we've got all these lovely hop, hoppy American craft beers," which, by the way, I absolutely adore. 
Um, it's so much better than crappy British real ale. And then you go and talk to the brewers who founded these American breweries, and their inspiration <laughs> was, was British real ale that they were trying to brew. The, the guys who set up uh, Sierra Nevada and uh, Goose Island were trying to recreate Fuller's beers from Chiswick. They failed, but they created American craft beer instead, and I'm very glad they did. No, yeah, exactly. But, but we, we do not give ourselves enough credit in this country for our enormous influence on the on the global beer scene. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of great British breweries out now and people are fans of these breweries, but they tend to be fans of the breweries that are following the American model, uh, yeah. which I think is a big shame. And I'm working on a an article at the moment which I might keep the title this cumbersome just out of stubbornness but uh, 10 beers that have been around forever but you would totally lose your shit if they were new brewers by <laughs> new beers by a new brewer that came out this year for the first time yeah because <laughs> <laughs> you get some of these old classics and you're like oh that is a beer that's yeah. a beer yeah um, I just reviewed a beer called Old Tom by Robinson's Brewery okay because they had a packaging design re- redesign I thought why not uh, it was first brewed in 1899, and if I poured a glass of it in here for these guys to drink, they go, "Oh, this is cool. Who's this? Is this? Is this? This is from? Uh, yeah. This is from New England. This is yeah. the latest collaboration, New England IPA. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> no, this is a beer that's been brewed in Stockport, Lancashire, yeah. since 1899. <laughs> you know, we have, we have these great treasures, and I, I I'm trying to. Uh, it's what my new book is about as well, but in a different area. But, uh, Trying to celebrate what we do really well, yeah. without sounding like a Brexit-loving, right. foreigner-hating. You know, <laughs> it's like I'm, I'm delighted that I have, um, I'm delighted that I have American-influenced beers available to me. Because yeah. I used to have to go to America to get them, right. and I'm delighted they're here. I would also like to have British ones next to them, yeah, because I'm in Britain. <laughs> well, it would, yeah, it's. You know, I was at, I was at the Howling Hops as I mentioned earlier today, and you know they're fairly strong poppy of course their name implies it lineup but you know they had a New England IPA they had a, what they call an Aussie IPA but then they also had some more yeah. regular I mean not regular but just Burton on Trent style styles. IPAs yeah no I, d- I don't know anyone making I don't know any new craft brewer making a Burton on Trent style IPA yeah, yeah I know which is where the fucking thing came from yeah. you know it's just <laughs> you know it's like yeah there should be some respect for the that history is so rich here. Yeah, and it's funny. I should, I should make, I should take the classic British styles and make them over in North America because then they'd be cool and different. Yes, yes, <laughs> over there. But we, we, we talk about uh, when I was when I was in the hop fields. Um, the, the, the British hop industry is in crisis. It's a little bit better than it was now, but. Um, yeah, you know, oh, talk to American, sorry, British brewers about more American hops than they are British hops, which is crazy. But then I talk to the hop growers, and like, no, we're not worried because we're sending fifty percent of our Golden Goldings hops to the United States. So the locals, local growers, are sending them to yeah. the states. Yeah. So, so, so American brewers want British yeah. hops because they want they're trying to make session brew, session beers. Yeah. In the British style. Well, and that's the thing. I was um, I was at a pub near my sister um, earlier this week, and we were there for a, a good session. My brother-in-law and I we were basically there for about eight hours, and we got to talk talking to the barman. And I was telling him how a lot of IPAs in Ontario were six, seven percent, but I want them to be like the ones that I was drinking here. 
because I, I can't you can't do a session at six and seven percent. That's why the most popular styles nowadays are session IPAs down back in the, the U.S. because it's that profile of flavor, but without the, the kick yeah. because you just get knocked on your ass. Yeah, you just want to. My thing with beer is that when I when I start drinking beer, I want to carry on drinking beer. Exactly. <laughs> I can't just. I, have, I can never have a beer and then just yeah. stop stop it. It's like oh, that's no fun. Uh, I have a, an experience quite often in craft beer bars where uh, you'll spot on the tap list you'll spot some kind of uh, 10.5% barrel aged imperial stout yeah. and you're like right I'm going to leave here about 10.30 that's the last drink I'm going to have before I leave Yeah. so now I need to plot my way to that from this early point in the evening so what am I going to have in the run up to that and you know no, they're all end of session beers. They're all end of the night beers. What am I going to drink in the meantime? And I always find, from experience, that finishing the night with a 10.5% beer is not always the smartest thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> Can often lead to some bad things. Um, so I want to. Um, I don't want to take up much more of your time. You've been very generous with it. But I want to ask, what's in store for, for Pete this year? You mentioned that you had a new project. Yeah. So, what's, so having done Miracle Brew, I'm now switching tracks back to my non-beer okay. uh, track. But it's some of the things that we've already talked about. It's about British food. Okay. Uh, we have every few months, newspaper will publish a poll saying... Um, what are, what are Britain's favourite meals? And it's always fish and chips, Sunday roast beef, pies, uh, pies, full English breakfast. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, these are the meals, these are the meals. And then you look at what's in the British shopping basket, and these things aren't there. Yeah. Um, and so it's exploring this idea of the the difference between what we say our favourite meals are and what we actually eat, and why we still say these are our favourite meals. Right. And also why, if you talk to anyone from outside Britain, I'd say what the British people eat. They'll say fish and chips, roast beef, <laughs> right. and cooked breakfasts. You know, and coming here to coming here to Britain as a tourist, I think most people would want to have fish and chips while they while they're here. Yeah. Um, and then people go away and say, "Well, British food is really terrible." Um, and there's a, there's a thing where it's like, "Well, if you had fish and chips in a central London pub that's aimed at tourists." then yes it is yes. but if you go to my hometown in Yorkshire and have fish and chips it's the best it's delightful. in the world yeah. <laughs> so it's exploring that it's kind of like I did with my first book my into a book which was about the social history of beer yeah. it's the social history of the food that defines Britain right? nice. um, well Pete this has been so great talking to you um, thank you for taking the time to chat thank you um, all the best with Miracle Brew and the, the new book Thanks. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'd love to come back for the the next uh, Beer Insider Marketing Awards show. Excellent, it's in September. Okay, so we'll sounds great. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Cheers.